Chapter Two of the Sea Witch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jerry Dixon. The Sea Witch by Murray Maturin Ballou. Chapter Two. Captain Will Ratlin. The watch below, after completing the work which had summoned them for the time being on deck, tumbled helter-skelter down the forehatch once more, and left on the deck of the Sea Witch about a dozen able seamen who formed the watch upon deck. A number of these were now gathered in a knot on the forecastle, and while they were sitting cross-legged, picking old rope, and preparing it in suitable form for caulking the ship's seams, one of their number was spinning a yarn the hero of which was evidently him who now filled the post of commander on board their vessel. The object of their remarks, meanwhile, stood once more quietly leaning over the monkey rail on the weather side of the quarter-deck, quite unconscious that he was supplying a theme of entertainment to the forecastle. There was an absent expression in his handsome face, a look as though his heart was far distant from the scene about him, and yet a habit of watchful caution seemed ever and anon to recall his senses, and his quick keen glance would run over the craft from stem to stern with a searching and comprehensive power that showed him master of his profession, and worthy his trust. Trust? What was the trust he held? Surely no legitimate commerce could warrant the outfit of such a vessel as he controlled. A man of war could hardly have been more fully equipped with means of offense and defense. Amidship, Beneath that long boat was a long, heavy, metalled gun that worked on a traverse, and which could command nearly every point of the compass while the ship kept her course. Just inside the rise of the low quarter-deck, the cabin being entered from the deck by the descent of a couple of steps, there were ranged boarding-pikes, muskets, cutlasses, and pistols, ready for instant use. In shape they formed stars, hearts, and diamonds, dangerous but fantastic ornaments. The brightness of these arms, and the handy way in which they were arranged in the sockets made to receive them, showed at once that they were designed for use, while the various other fixtures of the cabin and docks plainly bespoke preparation for conflict. A strong and lofty boarding netting being stowed, also told of the readiness of the sea witch to repel boarders. That all these preparations had been made merely as ordinary precautions in a peaceful trade was by no means probable. And yet there they were, and there stood the bright-eyed, handsome, and youthful commander upon the quarter-deck. But he did not look the desperado. Such a term would have poorly accorded with his open and manly countenance, his quiet and gentlemanly mien. A pirate would hardly have dared to lay the course he steered in these latitudes, where an English or French cruiser was very likely to cross his track. He handles a ship as prettily as ever a true blue did yet, said one of the forecastle group in replying to some remark of a comrade concerning the commander. "'That's true,' answered another. "'He seems to have a sort of natural way with him, as though he'd been born aboard and never seed the land at all. And as to that matter, there may be them on board who say as much of him.' "'That isn't far from the truth,' answered Bill Marline. "'Seeing he started so early on the sea, he can't tell when he wasn't there himself.' "'How was that matter, Bill?' asked one of his messmates. They say you've kept the captain's reckoning, man and boy, these fifteen years. That have I, and never a truer heart floated than the man you see yonder leaning over the rail on the quarter-deck, where he belongs. 
answered Bill Marline. How did you first fall in with him, Bill? Tell us that, said one of the crew. Well, do ye see, messmates? It must have been the matter of thirteen years ago, there or thereabouts, but I can't exactly say, seeing's I never have kept a log and can't write. But must have been about that length of time, when I was a foremast hand on board the sea lion, as fine an Indiaman as you would wish to see. We were lying in the Liverpool docks, with sails bent and cargo stowed, under sailing orders, when one afternoon there strolled alongside a boy rather ragged and dirty, but with such eyes and such a countenance as you would make him a passport anywhere. Well, do ye see? We were lazing away time on board, and waiting the captain's coming before we hauled out into the stream, and so we coaxed the lad aboard. He either didn't know where he came from or wouldn't tell, and when we proposed to take him to sea with us, he readily agreed and sure enough he sailed in the sea lion. "'Well, heave ahead, Bill,' said one of the group, as the narrator stopped to stove a fresh installment of the Virginia weed in his larboard cheek. "'Heave ahead!' "'We hadn't got fairly clear of the channel,' continued Bill Marline, "'before the boy had become a general favorite all over the ship. We washed him up and bent on a new suit of toggery on him, with a regular tarpaulin, and there was almost a fight whether the forecastle or the cabin should have him.' At last it was left to the boy himself, and he chose to remain with us in the forecastle. The boy wasn't sick an hour on the passage until after we left the Cape of Good Hope, when the flag halyards getting fouled, he was sent up to the peak to loosen it, and by some lurch of the ship was throw upon the deck. Why it didn't kill him as was the wonder of us all, but the boy was crazy for near a month from the blow on his head, which he got in falling, but he gradually got cured under our captain's care. Well, do you see, our captain was a regular whole-souled fellow, though he did sometimes work up a hand's old iron pretty close for him, and so he took the boy into the cabin and gave him a berth alongside his own, and as he grew better took to teaching him the use of his instruments, and mathematics and the like. The boy, they said, was wonderful ready, and learned like a book, and could take the sun and work up the ship's course as well as the captain. But what was the funniest of all was that, after he got well, he didn't know one of us. He had forgotten or even how he came on board the ship. The injury had put such a stopper on his brain that he had forgotten all that ever occurred before it. To my mind, howdsomever, it wasn't much to forget, seeing he was little better than a baby and hadn't been to sea at all. And you know there ain't anything worth knowing on shore more than one can overhaul in a day's leave, more or less, within hail of the sea. That's true, growled one or two of his messmates. Our ship was a first-class freighter and passage vessel, and on the home voyage we had plenty of ladies. T'was surprising to see how natural-like the boy took to em, and how they all liked him. He was constantly learning something, and soon got so he could parley vu like a real frog-eaten Frenchman. And then, as I said before, he took the sun and worked up the ship's reckoning like a commodore. Well, do ye see, messmates? We made a second and third voyage together in that ship. And when Master Will Ratlin, for that was the name we gave him when he first came on board, and he's kept it ever since, was a matter of fourteen years, he was nearly as big as he is now, and acted as mate. And though I say it, who ought to know somewhat about those things, I never seed a better seaman of twice his years, always saving present company, messmates. In course, Bill, growled three or four of his messmates heartily. Well, do you see, messmates, we continued together in the same ship for the matter of five years, and then Master Will and I shipped in another Indiaman, 
and we were in the Birmingham for three years or more. One day we lay off the Cape on the home passage, and half a dozen of us got shore leave for a few hours, and I among the rest, and somehow I got rather more grog aboard than I could stow, and when I came off, the captain swore at me like a pirate, and after I got sober, triced me up to the main rigging for a round dozen. When all hands were called to witness punishment, shiver my timbers if Master Will Ratlin, who was the first mate, didn't walk boldly up to the captain and say blunt and honest, Captain Brace, Marline is an old and favorite seaman, and if you will let this offense pass without further punishment, I will answer for his future good behavior at all times. I ask it, sir, as a personal favor. But discipline, discipline must be observed, Mr. Ratlin. I acknowledge he's in fault, sir, said our mate. And deserves the punishment, said the captain. I fear he does, sir, but yet I can't bear to see a good seaman flogged, said the mate apologetically. Nor I either, said the captain, but Bill Marline deserves the cat, though as you make it a personal matter, why, I'll let him off this time, Mr. Ratlin. The captain didn't wish to let me go, but he said he wished to gratify his mate, and so I was cast loose, and after a broadside of advice and a hurricane of oaths, was turned over to duty again. I didn't forget that favor, messmates, and sink me if I wouldn't go to the bottom to serve him any time. He commanded a brig in the South American trade after that, and would have made a mate of me, but somehow I've got a weakness for grog that isn't very safe, and so he knows t'won't do. You see him there now, messmates, as calm as a lady, but he's awake when there's need of it. The man don't live that can handle a ship better than he. And as for fighting, do ye see, messmates, we were running on this here same tack, just off the, but avast upon that. I haven't any more to say, messmates, said the speaker demurely. Bill Marline evidently found himself treading upon dangerous ground, and wisely cut short his yarn thereby creating a vast amount of curiosity among his messmates, but he sternly refused to speak further upon the subject. Either his commander had prohibited him, or he found that by speaking he should in some way compromise the credit or honor of one upon whom he evidently looked as being little less than one of a superior order of beings to himself. But what do you bring up so sudden for? Pay out, old fellow. There's plenty of sea room and no land sharks to fear, said one of the group encouragingly. Never you mind, messmates. There's nothing like keeping a civil tongue in your head, especially being quiet about other people's business, added Bill. What think you, Bill, of this present vocation, eh? asked another companion. I shipped for six months. That's all I know, and no questions asked. I understand very well that Captain Ratlin wouldn't ship me where he wouldn't go himself. Well, do you see, Bill, most of us are new on board here, though we have knocked about long enough to get the number of our mess and to work ship together, and don't perhaps feel so well satisfied as you do. Why, look ye, messmates, aren't you satisfied so long as the articles ye signed are kept by captain and crew? asked Bill Marline, somewhat tartly. Why, yes, as to that matter. "'But where are we bound, Bill?' asked the other. "'Any boy in the ship can make out the sea witch's course,' said the old tar evasively. "'We're in these here northern trades, close hauled, and heading, according to my reckoning, due east, and any man who has stood his trick at the will of a ship knows that such a course steered from the West Indies will, if well followed, run down the Cape Verdes. That's all I know.' 
Port Praia and a port. That was in the article, sure enough, answered he who had questioned Bill Marline. But the sea witch will scarce anchor there before she is off again, according to my reckoning. That the old tar knew more than he chose to divulge, however, was apparent to his comrades, but they knew him to be fixed when he chose, and so did not endeavor by importunity to gather anything further from him, so the conversation gradually changed into some other channel. In the meantime, while the crew gathered about Bill Marline were thus speculating, the vessel bowled along gracefully, with a speed that was in itself exhilarating to her young commander, who still gazed idly at the passing current. Once or twice a slight frown clouded his features, and his lips moved as though he was striving within himself, either against real or imaginary evil, and then the same calm, placid manliness of countenance radiated his handsome features, and his lips were composed. Now he turned to issue some necessary order, which was uttered in that calm, manly distinctness that challenges obedience, and then he resumed his idle gaze over the vessel's side, once more losing himself in his daydream. End of chapter 2 Recorded by Jerry Dixon, Zephyr Hills, Florida